For those of you who don't know me, my name is Frank Pacetti. I am the director in Susquehanna County of Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ is a ministry that began in the 1940s. Our first full-time employee was a guy by the name of Billy Graham. You may have heard of him. Um, Billy Graham was a, a part of the ground floor. He, Back in those days, Youth for Christ was centered around rallies and big events that they would do. Now we've kind of transitioned to uh, more relationships with students. I'm going to share a little bit um, about, about what we do with you here in a few minutes. Um, but you may or may not know that I am the son-in-law of Alvin and Linda Miller. And um, the nice thing about getting older, we just had Alvin's, I think it was his 80th birthday party. And see, we had to tell him the day before. But because he's, but because he's old, it still was a surprise this, the day of the actual birthday party. So there's, there's some advantages. Uh, the first time I met Alvin, he was refereeing a church basketball league. And, oh, I, I think I, I may have during a game, I, I broke away. I was going down the court. I was going to dunk it, and a, one of the guys tackled me, and he didn't call foul. And I was a new Christian playing. I was at playing for Brushville with Norm Walker at the time. You might remember Norm. And I, I told Alvin he was the worst referee I had ever seen that he needed to get new glasses. I told everything he could. I told him he was awful. Well, what I didn't know was that day there was this cute blonde girl in the stands watching the games. So I started talking to her, and and one thing led to another. And I said, "Hey, we want to go out sometime?" And she said, "Sure." So a couple days later, I drove to her house, and she came to the front door, and the door opened. And I looked on the wall, and there was a picture of Alvin on the wall. And I said, he's your father? <laughs> and she, yep. It was amazing how much his referee skills improved in one week. <laughs> no doubt about it. Uh, well, we have, I've been in youth ministry for over 30 years, and I always heard from people, when are you going to become a real pastor? And um, I don't take offense at that. Because I know what they're saying. A lot of people start out in youth ministry and move their way up and become senior pastors. Um, I like to say to those people who ask me when I'm going to become a real pastor, I remind them that 85% of people who trust Christ do it before they're 18 years old. When, when are you going to get where the action is, is what I like to say. Um, so God has blessed us with 30 years of youth ministry. And next month, I think, is this our 36th year of marriage? I know, Kim forgets the day more than I do. So 36 years of, of marriage. Um, a lot of people ask me, what do you do with Youth for Christ? Um, and I thought I'd just start by, by sharing. I don't think my slides are going to work. Oh, wait, wait it is working. I'll just back it up a little bit. All right, here we go. There. This is our mission statement with Youth for Christ. Youth for Christ reaches young people everywhere. Um, we're different than a youth group because we don't expect kids uh, to come to us. We go to where they are. We reach young people everywhere. We work together with the local church. And since I started here almost seven years ago, you have been partners with us in that ministry of Youth for Christ, and we thank you very much for that. So we partner with local churches and other like-minded partners, and this is what we're trying to do, to raise up lifelong followers of Jesus who lead by godliness in their lifestyle, devotion to the Word of God and prayer, passion for sharing the love of Christ, and commitment to social involvement. In real simple terms, 
we take Jesus, his love, his good news, to students who might not otherwise darken the door of a church. Uh, here are some statistics that, that are eye-opening when you stop to think about it. Currently, in northeastern Pennsylvania, in the area where we have Campus Life Clubs, there are 50,000 high school students between 9th and 12th grade. 50, now, that includes Susquehanna County, Wayne, uh, Wyoming, Lackawanna, Luzerne, Monroe, Monroe and Pike. Those are all counties that, that we are a part of in our ministry. 50,000 9th through 12th grade students. Here's what's really sad. 96% of those 50,000 students have zero affiliation with any church or any youth group. If my math is correct, that's about 48,000 students who have never darkened the door of a church or a youth, grade, youth group. They don't go to church. They've never gone to youth group. They most likely have never heard the gospel. Uh, they don't own Bibles. They don't have anyone to give them a biblical context for life events that are happening around them today. And there certainly are some interesting events going on in our world today. The world of these uh, 50,000 students has been turned upside down. Really, uncertainty these past years, not just for us, but for young people, is the only thing that's certain. Their school has changed, their friends have changed, their sports have changed, holidays have changed. Everything about their world has been turned upside down. Yesterday in Scranton Times, I don't know if you read the article, it talked about the number of grandparents that are raising grandchildren in the United States. Uh, the actual numbers were a little higher. Uh, there are 82,000 grandparents in the state of Pennsylvania that are raising 90,000 grandkids, the sole caregivers. The world of teenagers is in turmoil. And we're not surprised because it's our world and we see the turmoil, turmoil ourselves. God's design for the family has been crumbling over the years, and we step into, as missionaries with Youth for Christ, we step into that world every single week. And let me tell you, it is not always pretty. Do you know that in Susquehanna County, there are high school students who sleep in their car, who live in their car? I was subbing at the Votex Center at Elk Lake. And a girl I noticed came in on a regular basis and she never had anything for lunch and she never went. And I, and I said, what's going on? And she would, went on to tell me that I sleep in my car. I go to my friend's house and they let me take showers. Sitting in a Campus Life club a year ago and the kids were telling about their life stories and one of the, one of the kids' dad is in jail for life. He will never see his dad outside of the bars of a jail. We were playing a game uh, a little discussion. We do club, which is a relational-based ministry where we go to the kids. And it, this one was in the basement of a church in Susquehanna. And I asked the kids um, to describe themselves and what they wanted to be. And the one girl said, I want to be an artist because I paint a smile on my face every day. This is a high school, ninth grade girl in this county. Two weeks ago, I was sitting in a circle with students, and we asked them to answer the question, I wish I were more. And this girl said, I wish I were more perfect. And I said to her, you know, nobody's perfect. Jesus was the only one who was perfect. And she said, well, then let me change it. I just want to be a little less imperfect. 
the world of teenagers is rough. It's tough. And this morning I want to take us to an Old Testament passage that I think could give us some really timely advice for today. Do you ever hear the expression, jump in Jehoshaphat? Anybody? I have no idea what that comes from, but I remember my grandma used to say that word. And so growing up, I, I, I just thought Jehoshaphat was an expression that, that old people would say. And I come to find out when I went to Bible college, went to seminary, I found out he's an actual person that was actually in the Bible. And here's some of the statistics that we just ran through. Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was the sixth king of Israel. Let me give you just a couple highlights. Let me just put them all up here um, about Jehoshaphat. If you go to chapter 17 of 2 Chronicles, you find these things out about Jehoshaphat. He followed the ways of his father, David. Jehoshaphat was the sixth king, so David wasn't directly his father. He would have been his great, 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 great grandfather. Uh, but he followed the ways of David. And if, as far as kings went, there weren't a lot that followed in David's footsteps. Jehoshaphat uh, was one of the godly kings of Israel. In verse 4, it says he sought the God of his fathers. Verse 6 of chapter seven, uh, 17 says, his heart was devoted to the things of the Lord. Like, unlike a lot of other kings, verse 7 says he removed the high places and the Asherah poles. They were remnants of idol worship that were found in their communities when they moved into the promised land. He removed those. He taught the people of Judah the word of God. He was one of the few kings that it speaks of him actually having not just a kingly role, but also almost like a priestly role where he taught the people the word of God. But like many people in the Bible, Jehoshaphat wasn't perfect. And if you read chapter 18 of Second Chronicles, uh, you'll begin to see that he, he didn't always exercise good judgment. At this time in the history of Israel, the nation had been split after Solomon into two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom called Judah. He was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, the northern kingdom got in some, into some problems with some of their neighbors. And one of Jehoshaphat's problems is he didn't exercise good judgment. He got a phone call, if they had such a thing, probably a message from King Ahab. King Ahab, probably the most wicked king of Israel's history, married to Jezebel, calls him up and says, listen, we need help. We are being attacked. Um, Jehoshaphat, after some flattery and bribery, uh, was convinced by Ahab to come to help them in this battle. Which you could say they're brothers, they're from the same tribe, that was a good thing for him to do. But you see his lack of judgment in not only does he align himself with a wicked king, but he also makes a really foolish decision. Ahab knew that his enemies would be looking to kill him in battle. That was the strategy of the kings uh, of of warfare in that time. You would find the king where he was in battle, and you, if you could kill the king, the rest of the army would become in disarray, and they would go in opposite directions and take off. So what Ahab did, I can't believe Jehoshaphat fell for this. He said, listen, I'm going to go into battle dressed like a normal soldier, but I want you to wear all your kingly stuff. And so he does. He falls for it. It would be like if you wanted to take somebody hunting that you didn't like, and you said to him, listen, I'm going to wear this nice orange, blaze orange outfit, and I have a brown coat for you, 
and I have this really nice hat with antlers I want you to wear, and we're going to go out hunting. That's exactly what he did. He tricked him and said, listen, I'm going to go in disguise. You go in dressed like the king. Let's see how this thing happens. So when you get, read chapter 28, if you're reading along with me, chapter 28 of Second uh, Chronicles 18, it says, So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, went up to Ramoth Gilead. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter into battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. So the king of Israel disguised himself, and he went into battle. Now the king of Aram had ordered his chariot commanders, do not fight with anyone small or great except the king of Israel. When the chariot commanders saw Jehoshaphat, they thought, this is the king of Israel, so they turned to attack him. But Jehoshaphat cried out, and the Lord helped him. God drew them away from him. For when the chariot commanders saw that he was not the king of Israel, they stopped pursuing him. But someone... I love how, how general the sex part of this, the, the passage begins. Someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the breastplate and the scale of armor, the only spot where he had vulnerability. The king told the chariot driver, wheel around and get me out of the fighting. I've been wounded all day long, the battle raged, and the king of Israel propped himself up against his chariot, facing the Arameans until evening. Then at sunset, he died. In spite of Jehoshaphat's stupidity, God protected him during the battle. And in spite of his craftiness, Ahab was killed. And even though the writer says that someone drew his bow at random, we all know that it wasn't random at all. By God's grace, Jehoshaphat was spared because of his foolishness. One of the things I love about the Bible is it presents people as they really are. It doesn't try to make us look like superhumans or super Christians. It doesn't sugarcoat anything. Jehoshaphat was a good king, but he didn't always do the right thing. Some of us need to hear that this morning. It's possible to not be perfect and have God still use you in the lives of others. Don't beat yourself up when you fall. Pick yourself up. Embrace God's grace. Embrace his forgiveness. Learn from your mistakes and don't make them again. In chapter 20 of Second Chronicles, Jehoshaphat finds himself in his own predicament. The first story in chapter 18 is the northern king surrounded by by enemy armies. When you come to chapter 20 of 2 Chronicles, it's Jehoshaphat that finds himself surrounded by enemy army, armies. It says, after this, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 1, the Moabites and Ammonites with some of the Munites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. Some people came and told Jehoshaphat, a vast army is coming against you from Edom. This is one of the things about being a leader. You know, he doesn't, they don't say a vast army is coming against us. They say a vast army is coming against you. And in leadership, we are often at the forefront in the ones being blamed uh, when, when bad things happen. So this vast army is coming against you from Eden, from the other side of the Dead Sea. It's already in Hazan Tamar, that is in Engadi, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to, and I want to stop there. 
He's in the middle of this mess. He's got to make a decision. What was Ahab's decision in the middle of his mess? He was going to use cunning and deceit and try to get himself out of the mess that he was in. Jehoshaphat finds himself in the similar situation, and it says he resolved to. If we're honest with ourselves, we've all found ourselves in predicaments like this. Maybe not surrounded by enemy armies, but certainly surrounded by difficulty, pain, hardship, and, and struggle. The question I want to ask you this morning is, what do you do to try to resolve these type of alarming situations in your own life? For too many of us, we run in, in one of two directions. The first direction I call self-help. We immediately go into problem-solving mode. We assess the situation. We put a plan together to fix whatever it is we're facing. It's what Ahab did. He was going to solve his problem by tricking Jehoshaphat into looking like he was him. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in man's heart, but it's God's counsel that stands. Self-help is man-centered. Who we go to immediately in the time of trouble and difficulty shows a lot about who we put our trust in. Not only is self-help a man-centered approach, but it rarely, even in the case, like in the case of Ahab, it rarely ever works or brings a peaceful resolution. So when you face a problem, is your instinctive response, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? Who am I going to bring here to help me with this problem? That's self-help. Now, are we supposed to be involved in solving our problems? Absolutely. But what's our first reaction? The second approach is even more destructive than the first. For some of us, the problem becomes so overwhelming that we skip the self-help and we go to self-medication. He probably is rarely, if ever, quoted in church. But there's a radio personality by the name of Michael Savage. Anybody ever heard of, heard of Michael Savage? He's rough. If you take Rush Limbaugh and you turn him up about 100 degrees, that would be Michael Savage. He's very intense, very straightforward. But he said this about our culture. He said this in 2017. No society on earth has ever been as drugged as this one, ever both illegal and illegal. It's like a society of drug zombies, all a manifestation of spiritual poverty. You cannot fill every hole of the spirit with medicines. So many people today, so many people in our little county of northeastern Pennsylvania with 41,000 people today, their first step towards solution of any problem they find themselves is, is to medicate, to try to hope it, it will get easier, that it will be better when I become sober. The world can medicate your guilt and your pain, but only God can remove it. Self-medication never corrects a problem. It only makes it seem better for a while. Let's look at what Jehoshaphat did. He's been notified that this huge army of Moabites and Ammonites are on their way to attack him. But let's go back to the text. Alarm, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek help. He didn't go into self-help mode. He didn't crawl into his tent and open up 
a six-pack, he, I like to call what he did, self-surrender. He didn't call the king of Israel to come and help bail him out. He didn't, get, he didn't gather an army of military leaders together and say, what are we going to do to do this? He cried out to God in the midst of his mess, and he proclaimed a fast, and he gathered the people to seek help from God. What if our churches in our country instead of becoming upset at the politics going on around us. What if we did that? What if we proclaimed a fast, we gathered the people together, and we prayed? I think it's time that the church in America employs the same approach to the moral and spiritual decay of our country as Jehoshaphat did here in this situation. He inquired of the Lord. He proclaimed a fast. The people came together to seek help from God. I'll include myself in this statement I'm about to make. We need to put more confidence in God than we do in our elected officials. We need to spend more time turning into the word, tuning into the Word of God than we do to Fox News and CNN. We need to remind people in America that we became the envy of the world not because we were smart and politically savvy, but because God's grace was upon us. And we need to stop using drugs and alcohol to help us deal with the realities that surround us. Listen to what Jehoshaphat said to his people as these vast armies were moving in toward Jerusalem. Then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord in front of the courtyard. And this is what he said. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one can withstand you. O oh God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it, and they have built in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, If calamity comes upon us, whether the sword of judgment or plague of famine, we shall stand in your presence before this temple that bears your name and will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. But now here are men from Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came from Egypt. When they went into the promised land, God said, leave these people alone when you go in to take over the land. So they turned away, the Israelites turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they are repaying us by coming to drive us out of the possession that you gave us for an inheritance. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In that very last verse I just read to you, Jehoshaphat beautifully depicts the circumstances that we are facing in our country today. He makes three statements that I want to close with this morning. I think these statements are key if we as Christians are going to make a difference in the world in which we live. For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do but our eyes are on you. We don't have the power to fix this. There's not enough money in our country right now 
that we could invest today and tomorrow this pandemic will be taken care of. There's just not enough power to do that. There are not enough police to send out into the streets, to send out into our little rural county and stop the drugs that are coming in here and the usage that is taking place. There's no one that has enough power to step in and fix the problem of 80-some thousand grandparents raising their grandkids. Jehoshaphat faces the problem, and what does he do? He says, we do not have the power to fix this. Secondly, he says, we don't know what to do. Most leaders in America would never admit to this. Could you imagine being a, a politician giving a stump speech here this morning and saying, I want you to vote for me. I don't know what to do to fix the pandemic. I don't know what to do to fix the roads in Susquehanna County. I don't know what to do to, to help families not break up and grandparents. We would think, what is this guy, nuts? He's standing up here and wants me to vote for him, and he says, I don't know what to do. Here is the most powerful man in the country standing before his people saying, we don't have the power to fix this. And you know what? If we're honest, we do not know what to do. Kind of sounds a little bleak, doesn't, doesn't it? It does, unless his last statement isn't made. But our eyes are on you. They're not on the 24-hour news cycle. They're not on the newspapers. They're not on all the discouraging statistics and realities that are happening around us. Our eyes are on you. I believe that this final phrase, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, is one of the most touching expressions of trusting God found anywhere in the Bible. Charles Spurgeon beautifully interpreted this phrase. What did Jehoshaphat mean when he said, our eyes are upon you? What did he mean by that? He meant, Lord, if help does come, it must come from you. We're looking to you for it. It cannot come from anywhere else, so we look to you. But we believe it will come. Men will not look for that which they know will not come. We feel sure it will come, but we do not know how, so we are looking. We do not know when, but we are looking. We do not know what you would have us to do, but as the servant looks to her mistress, so are we looking to you, Lord. Lord, we are looking to you. You're going to have to read the rest of Second Chronicles 20s to see how it works out for Jehoshaphat. Let's just say that God always comes through for us when we admit that we're powerless and when we admit that we don't know what to do, if our eyes are on him. That's what our country needs, that's what our churches need, and that's what our families need, and that's what each one of us as individual followers of Jesus Christ needs as we face our world and the difficulties that we face on a regular basis. If you have kids that are struggling with addiction, you know what it means. It feels like to feel powerless, you know what it feels like to not know what to do, but to know that your eyes can be put on the creator who can do anything above what we can ask or think gives us hope. And that's what we need, need to do. It's okay to admit we don't know what to do. That's what I love about Jehoshaphat. The leader of the greatest nation in the, in the, in the world at that time says, 
I don't know what to do. And I think that's a great example for us as followers of Christ to admit that we don't always know what to do and to, to always be looking to him. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for this true story of a man who was not perfect, a man who had his own trials and difficulties, but one who understood some things that we need to be reminded of this morning. Lord, whatever situation individuals are facing here today, help them to understand it's okay for them to say they're powerless to fix it. Help them to, to understand that it's okay to say that they don't know what to do. But Lord, I pray that you would give them strength beyond understanding to be able to keep their eyes focused on you because there is no lack of power, there is no lack of knowledge when it comes to you, our Father God. We love you and thank you for this opportunity to be here together to worship this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.